Wild West Podcast presents Return of the Great Hunters, Part 4, Prairie Thunder. Written by Mike King and narrated by Brad Smalley. The day after we camped on Bent Creek, several of the boys rode northeast to look over the country. Upon their return, they reported that there was an excellent site for a permanent camp on the next creek, about a mile and a half further on. So we pulled up to the valley and began unloading our wagons on the bare ground, in a broad valley where there was a handsome stream called East Adobe Walls Creek. Myers and Lenners built a picket house, 20 by 60 feet in size. James Hanrahan put up a sod house, 25 by 60, in which he opened a saloon. Thomas O'Keefe built a blacksmith shop of pickets, 15 feet square. Thus, a little town was sprouting in the wilderness, a place where we could buy something to eat and wear, something to drink, ammunition for our guns, and a place where our wagons, so necessary in expeditions like ours, could be repaired. While all this hammering and pounding and digging were going on, I rode the country with Masterson, Billy Tyler, and Mike McCabe. We were absent from the small settlement about 15 days, and upon our return, we found the buildings about finished. We did not see many buffaloes on this trip. During our absence from camp, Wright and Langdon came down from Dodge City with another outfit and built a sod house, 16 by 20 feet. This firm of Wright and Langdon bought buffalo hides and was engaged in general merchandising. James Langdon was in charge of the business. The buildings were finished as rapidly as possible, and every man at Adobe Walls Settlement, who could be induced to engage in manual labor, was given a job and paid well for his services. Each building had a big cottonwood ridge log, paralleled with the smaller poles running down the roof. The poles were covered with dirt and sod. For safety and convenience in handling their stock, Myers and Lenners built a stockade corral by setting big cottonwood logs in the ground. I had no liking for the monotony and restraint of camp life. I became impatient to be about my own business, which was to find a good buffalo range and begin hunting. After remaining in camp two days, Masterson and I saddled and mounted again to go up the Canadian as far west as Hills Creek. We crossed the river and followed the old Fort Bascom Trail to Antelope Creek. Here we struck the trail I had made during the previous winter, and which I now followed back across the Canadian, and thence north to Grapevine Creek, where we camped two or three days. This was at the edge of the plains. At intervals we struck small bands of bulls, as we did all the way. Buffaloes were surprisingly scarce. Sometimes we killed them, and at other times did not molest them. Generally, there were four to ten in a bunch. The scarcity of buffaloes somewhat discouraged us, and we redoubled our efforts to locate a big herd. We held to the east, keeping along the edge of the plains and coming down to the Canadian between Bugby Canyon and Big Creek. Bugby Canyon in May 1874. The season was delightful. The air was fresh and invigorating. It was green, flowers were blooming, the sky was clear, the sunshine pleasant and a feeling of joy and happiness everywhere. Those were splendid nights out there under the stars. The stars shone on a moonless night like sugar spilt over black marble, glistening in the sun. The night sky was such a welcome sight, appearing like magic at each sunset, 
promising to return as she faded in dawn's first light. The mornings came with dazzling splendor. At this season, sunrise on the plains presented a scene of magnificence. I always had the feeling that it came with a thunderous sound. After surveying the land, we decided to return to Adobe Walls. All the buildings had been finished and everybody was doing a good business. Quite a number of hunters had come down from the north and a plain trail had been opened between Adobe Walls and Dodge City, 150 miles away. Freight outfits were making regular trips between the two places. All of us hunters acquainted with the habits of the buffalo knew that the herds would soon be coming north from the Staked Plains region where they had spent the winter. The spring had been unusually late, which held back the buffaloes and their migration. There was nothing for us to do but wait until the buffaloes were moved by that strange impulse that twice annually caused them to change their home and blacken the plains with their countless moving forms. We could lie around camp or vary the monotony by going to adobe walls and joining in the fun that was rampant at that place. Our amusements were mostly card playing, running horse races, drinking whiskey and shooting at targets, the latter to improve our marksmanship. All this soon got old to me and about the last of May I pulled out again. Billy Tyler and Masterson decided to stay in camp to enjoy the festivities. So I decided to take three of my skinners, along with two freight wagons, and my two favorite mules, Toby and Old Joe. During the last part of May, our team of two wagons crossed the Canadian River at the mouth of White Deer Creek. Frenchy, my skinner, McCabe, our second driver, and Charlie Armitage, an Englishman who loved the frontier, all agreed we would keep along the edge of the river. We soon reached Dixon Creek, a creek I named after myself. At the head of Dixon Creek, we found an ideal camping ground. I knew by the signs, buffaloes had been through the area, and it was certain they would soon be returning. The area was ideal for building a permanent camping place with plenty of wood, grass, and water. We had been here two or three days when the expected happened. The next morning, I woke before my companions. I chunked the fire for breakfast. Standing over the smoldering stack of wood, a familiar sound came rolling toward me from the plains. It was as if a running train could be heard from a distance, a deep thunderous sound, moving, rumbling, as I knew what was at hand. I had often heard it. I had been listening for it for days, even weeks. Walking out on a high point near camp, I gazed eagerly toward the horizon. I could see nothing, save the vast, undulating landscape. My ears, however, had revealed to me what my eyes could not see. It was the sound of prairie thunder. The buffaloes were coming. Hurrying back to camp, I shouted the good news to McCabe, Armitage, and Frenchy, rousing them from their sleep and telling them to hurry breakfast. They lost no time in making coffee, frying meat, and browning a cake of bread. I saddled my horse by the time breakfast was ready, and after eating, hurriedly sprang into my saddle and went south at a gallop. After I had ridden about five miles, I began striking small bunches of buffalo bulls, all headed north and all moving. A further ride of eight miles carried me out onto the plains. My muscles hardened and grew warm at the sight. As far as the eye could reach, south, east, and west of me, there was a solid mass of buffaloes, thousands upon thousands of them, slowly moving toward the north. The noise I had heard at early daybreak was the bellowing of the bulls. At this time of year, the breeding season, 
The bellowing of the many bulls was continuous, a deep, steady roar that seemed to reach to the clouds. It was kept up night and day, but seemed to be the deepest and plainest at early morning. I was happy beyond measure and turned my horse toward camp, hastening at full speed to let my men know what I had found. Already the buffaloes were approaching the vicinity of our camp, and in sight of it, I shot thirty-five or forty, all bulls. The boys were soon busy at work with their skinning knives. By night, buffaloes were passing within gunshot of our camp. The business had now begun in earnest, and we would soon be enjoying a steady income to offset our winter's expenses. Where buffaloes were as plentiful as they were, I easily killed enough in a day to keep ten skinners busy at work. The next morning, bright and early, we were at work. We found a herd feeding on the prairie within two miles of camp. I crawled out on my hands and knees up the bank of the river. I took a lying position behind some brush when a herd of buffaloes approached. The herd was led by a few frisky young calves that broke out over the bank without stopping to explore. I rolled over quickly to stay out of their path. I thought if I retained my position, the whole bunch would trample over me. I was now lying in the long grass and saw what was coming. As I got to my feet, a stream of buffalo divided and swept to the right and left. Through the dust, I saw an old cow's head within three feet and let her have it under the fore shoulder. The impetus with which she was moving was so great that she pitched dead upon the sands at the brink of the river, three rods away. I looked over and saw Mike laughing at me. He was in total amusement. I could only imagine what a sight I portrayed. I began dodging and shooting the herd as they breached the hill, as if I had commenced a battle between them and they had commenced battle upon me. I wanted to prove myself to Mike that I was a buffalo runner, and all I could do at the moment was to engage in buffalo dodging. A calf was the next victim. I next blazed away at the spike, a three-year-old bull. The first shot was ineffectual. He ran up the river about a hundred yards. I kept at his heels and brought him down with a second bullet. By this time, the bunch was much scattered. Many animals crossed the river, and others ran down the stream and regained the bluffs below. Well before noon, we had killed 27. In the afternoon, under a darkening sky, we skinned these hides and loaded our wagons. On our return trip to camp, the sky began to thicken. Black clouds sprawled across the sky, billowing in from the west. The air grew heavy, and stillness fell over the darkening prairie. Then, out of the silence, came a low crackle of thunder, echoing across the hills. Then another streak of hot silver split the sky, this time closer. The boom rolled across the valley. The herd became spooked. There was an instant stampede. The herd scattered fan-like, stopping at a distance of two to three hundred yards. I looked back over my shoulder, getting a glimpse of the standing herd when a bolt of lightning ripped behind the dark canvas. A luminous shock of white blinded me, and in an instant, the graphite sky forked with a silvery radiance, crackled to the ground, striking the bull with one brilliant light. A thunderous boom called its warning too late. The herd began to run. The one stricken bull lay burning in a dark hole of glowing ember. It was then when I caught sight of a mass of dark objects. A second herd filled the horizon. The second herd was larger than the standing herd below us. Frenchy, manning the big wagon 300 yards behind us, yelled out, Buffaloes! Then Charlie fired a warning shot and bellowed out, 
Stampede! My brain jumped as Charlie's distant blood-curdling howl and gunshot made my hair stand on end. I watched anxiously as the land behind me was slowly transforming into a lethal running ground. I've seen darkness before, but this was the kind that makes blackness engulf a man's thoughts. Stretching out in front of me like a map, the massive herd awakened my fears, my courage, and my knowledge. The sky plunged into an ominous darkness, and with one flash had awakened all the creatures out of their lair. The two herds grew into one. The ground rumbled and roared like two freight trains running on the same track. The sounds were broken when Frenchie yelled out in the wagon next to me, Go, damn you! Go! Now it was time to make a run. McCabe grabbed his whip, stood high in the wagon, and kicked the reins high and yelled, Let's go, you damn mules! I did not look back, for the sound of the fast-running herd could be sensed all around me. The ground bounced underneath us. The wagon with a full load of hides was impossible to control. I could hear the wagon spokes of the wheels groan as our wagon's pace grew weaker under the strain of our load. The rain began to fall so thickly that there became an instant covering of water on the ground. Now mud holes began to form. Yet I continued to drive the wagon hard. The harsh rain obliterated the open land in front of me and turned our escape into disoriented chaos. Then, within seconds, the deafening sound of the approaching herd calmed. I pulled back on the reins. The wagon slowed to a stop. I stood up, looked back through the downpour, and the herd was no longer approaching our wagon. The heavy rains had carved a miniature canyon in their path. This was a rut about the same width of two freighter wagons, and deep as half a horse. The rut had turned to running buffalo east. I could still see their masses. The rain slowed their run over the hills, and in the distance, I could see them bogging down in the river. The next day, we did not hunt. The rain had taken over the prairie, filling the wallows with water. The mud did not hinder our horses, so Mike and I decided to ride out on the prairie, this time northeast of our camp. McCabe and I followed a buffalo trail. The trail would turn about every 400 yards. You notice how the trail turns and how crooked they are? I asked. That is because the buffalo's eyes are so placed in the head it's impossible for them to see forward. This is why they never pursue a straight course when migrating. They're compelled to keep one side turned as they look ahead with one eye. This motion of looking ahead with one eye and behind with the other causes them to stagger sideways for a few hundred yards as they change their view of the world from front to back. It was about five miles out on the buffalo trail when we witnessed hundreds of hides lying in waste, hides being spoiled by the rain. Some of the hides left by the hunters were torn apart by wolves. Large sets of bones stretched across the plains. The white skeletal remains glistened in the sun. The birds in large numbers tore into the carcasses. Such a waste, I thought to myself. Such a waste. It only took a few days to kill enough buffalo to keep McCabe, Frenchie, and Armitage employed skinning buffalo hides. I drew somewhat leery of where we were hunting. The place was out in the open, and I feared the Indians might see us. I wanted to pick up the pace of skinning, so I headed back to Adobe Walls in the light wagon to see if I could hire more skinners. On my way back to the Adobe Walls settlement, I'd undertaken to pick out the most direct route from my camp to Adobe Walls. Keeping on the divide between Dixon Creek and Short Creek, 
I came to a stretch of very rough country late in the evening, and finally reached a place where it was impossible to travel further in a wagon. As darkness was falling, I unhooked my mules, Toby and Joe, and jumped astride old Toby, and followed some buffalo trails down to Dixon Creek, nearest mouth, where grass and water were abundant. As this particular locality was new to me and darkness was at hand, I decided that I would camp there for the night. Picketing one of the mules, I turned the other one loose. With a single blanket for my head and my coat for a pillow, I lay down for the night and was soon sound asleep. The next morning, I hitched up and started my travel back to the Adobe Wall settlement. When I reached the Canadian, I found the river with her back up. The heavy rain from the day before filled the river to its banks. The water swirled turbid and brown. In that soup of mud and debris, the force of water had washed away both sides of the banks. The river had turned into a swollen tyrant, its surface pitted with hundreds of whitecaps. The river was so deep and swollen that it would have been the height of foolishness to attempt a crossing. I went on to White Deer Creek, hoping to find a shallower crossing. I waded the river in my search for a good footing, and decided finally that I could cross by swimming the mules fifty or sixty yards. Choosing a point on the opposite side of the river where I wished to land, I dove in and hoping for the best. In a moment, the swift current caught me and both mules were swimming. In water, a mule has less sense than a horse, and the ginger is soon knocked out of him as he gets his ears full of water. Having smaller feet, the mule cannot equal a horse in traversing quicksand. After the mules had taken a few plunges, the current caught up my wagon and whirled it over and over like a top. When I saw that the mules would have to swim for it, I sprang into the water to help the frightened animals, getting on their upper side and seizing the mule nearest me by his bridle. In this way, I was able to keep his head above water. The other mule, terrified by its surroundings, alternately rose and sank. I reached out to grab old Joe, and I went under the water with him. The current was strong, and my head started pounding. Every cell in my body screamed for oxygen. My right hand was entangled in the harness, and the wagon was pulling us under. I kept fighting until I felt like my head was about to explode. I let go of old Joe's harness and surfaced. I saw that if the wagon kept turning over, the team might get drowned. So I cut the harness, and after the greatest exertion, got the mules ashore. The near mule, old Joe, had laid down on the sand and died without a struggle. It seemed ridiculous that the mule should succumb after being taken from the water, yet there he lay. Old Toby was saved. The wagon drifted downstream about 60 yards and lodged against the bank. My greatest misfortune was the loss of my gun. The loss of my gun was a jolt from the shoulder. I stood in greatest need of my gun, a big 50. I could dig out the wagon, but not the guns and somewhere in the depths of the Canadian they're rusting this very day. I was a sorrowful sight as I straddled old Toby, and leaving old Joe to bleach on the Canadian sands, I had lost my hat in the river, and my clothing was plastered with mud and sand. <laughs> <laughs>